You're listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 98 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. And thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Miranda Brownlee is a journalist at SMSF Advisor and so an active observer of the SMSF industry. So if you want to know what is trending hot around SMSFs, Miranda is a good person to ask. So I went to see Miranda and I asked her, what are the top 10 SMSF hotspots? What news stories stood out over the past four months? Here's Miranda's answer. So we had the Aussie golfer decision came out in August, which it actually rejected a decision that was made by the federal court. So the full federal court decided that a property that was held in a sub-fund within the Domicom fund was not a breach of the sole purpose test, which went against the earlier finding by the other court. So that was obviously in favour of the SMSF member and it was quite an interesting outcome for SMSFs, I guess. And it went all the way to the full federal court. Yes, so wow. it's quite a, it's got a lot of sort of publicity, this case. And we've recently just heard that the ATO won't be appealing it. So we're awaiting them to come out with a decision impact statement, which they've said they're most likely going to put out soon. And do you know what happened? Why the ATO thought that the sole purpose test was an issue? Yeah, it comes down to sort of how they interpreted the benefit. They sort of interpreted it as it was a benefit it did breach the sole purpose test, but the court sort of found as there wasn't necessarily a benefit, it was all on market uh, arm's length terms, that it wasn't a breach. Yeah, Because it means basically you can rent to family members as long as you make it at arm's length and at market value. Yeah, potentially. You'd obviously still have to be within the in-house asset rules, which is something... I think the ATO sort of made a comment about. I see. So it still counts as an in-house asset, but it just means you don't breach the sole purpose test. Yes, but in some situations it could have an impact. And some people have sort of said that the ATO commentaries kind of downplayed the impact of it a little bit because they've said that it's just specifically the circumstances of that case. But other people have said if you had like a business and you're renting it out type thing, but it was perhaps... Yes, but the business is commercial property and that isn't subject yeah, to... Yeah, it would maybe be like if it was residential or something. I'm not mm. quite sure on that. The ATO downplayed it and said it's basically just a one-off case. Yeah. Don't count your chickens before they're hatched, basically. Yeah, exactly. I think they're concerned that people will get carried away with it. A few experts have mentioned that people might try and use widely held unit trusts to get around those in-house asset rules and the ATO would probably be concerned and might apply the anti-avoidance provisions so it should still be careful. We've also seen a lot of activity on the litigation front recently. Obviously that Cam and Bear case was a while ago now but we've recently had a newer case the Ryan Wealth Holdings, which was again against the SMSF auditor. 
and the SMSF auditor had to pay out to the trustee quite a significant amount and it was quite similar to that other case where the financial advisor had given some advice but perhaps wasn't the best kind of investment and then when his policy, PI policy, didn't work or I think it phased out, the trustee decided to go for the SMSF auditor and took them to court. And won. Yes, uh, I think the court found that the auditor was 90% responsible and the trustee only like 10%. The 90 and 10%, that reminds me of the previous case. Yes, very similar to that. So they actually, it was 90-10 again. Yes, so again, they've been held almost like entirely responsible. So it's probably a bit of a concern to auditors just to be a bit more careful with how they check investments. A couple of auditors have said that maybe they need to check the investment strategy, check it's appropriate for the client in terms of what risks they want to take on and maybe put a qualification in the audit report where it's sort of an unusual investment like a unit trust or a private company and they're not really able to check the value properly. And so what happened in this case? What happened is she invested in all these unsecured loans. The advisor had some kind of involvement in a lot of the companies that they invested in. I'm not quite sure why they were recommended to her, why she decided to invest in them. And basically she took the auditor to court because if they had identified it earlier, she could have sued them faster and gotten more money from the companies where she lost the money on the unsecured loans because they never paid, she never got her money back. And so did they also go for the financial advisor or they just went for the SMS? No, she, that was the sort of interesting thing. She never went for the advisor, probably because their PI policy ran out and she wasn't going to get any money from them. So instead she went for the auditor? Yeah, it looks like that anyway. Yeah, because all these cases, the auditor, indemnity insurance policies would probably go up and then hence they need to increase audit audit fees. Yeah, exactly. A lot of auditors have already sort of commented on that. They're a bit concerned that it is going to increase their insurance if it looks like people are able to take them to court and get money out of them for these kind of things. The previous one was Cam and Bear versus oh, yes. McGoldrick. Yeah. Yes, Cam and Bear. And it sounds like the cheese, but it isn't the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's true, actually. I didn't think of it that way. Yeah, it's, they always got strange names, these cases. But And the more recent ones, Ryan Wealth Holdings versus um, Bill Gardner. ATO auditors are also under scrutiny from the ATO as well recently. The ATO announced not that long ago that they're going to be reviewing the auditors, the top 100 auditors that audit the most SMSFs that lodge. So that encompasses about a third of all SMSFs who lodge annual returns, which is quite significant. And they're also conducting their reviews of audits a lot on a much faster basis. I think it was the SMSF expert that said they're only giving the trustee and the auditor and the tax agent a day's notice to that they're going to come in and review all the documents. A day's not a lot. No, so it'd be, if you didn't have the documents there, it's going to be very hard to 
scramble to put it together in that time. So they really need to have it all there in the first place. Mm. So it's only 100. Oh, but, 100. Yeah. So but, 100 auditors ordered a third of all of SMSFs Australia wide. Yeah, which is quite surprising in itself, I yeah. guess. Yeah. And do you know how many SMSFs that is, roughly? I think it might be like almost 600,000. Oh, yeah. yes, okay. So, so maybe 200,000 then. Yeah, yes. it seems like a big so, amount. <laughs> but 100 auditors doing... 200,000 SMSs. Yeah, I'm not sure. I that guess is amazing. I suppose there's only six, around 6,000 auditors in the whole space now, especially since the registration came in through ASIC. On the legislative front, there's not been that much happening. A lot of the legislation stuck in the Senate at the moment, like those integrity measures around gnarly and expenses and also the total super balance for LRBAs. But Treasury did put out the draft legislation for the work test measure. It seems like it won't, I guess, apply to that many because you have to have 300,000 or less. And they made it very clear that you can't use it for the bring forward arrangement in some of the examples they gave. We've also had some court cases to do with more estate plannings. That was more just to rectify issues and fix documents for clients. So there was the re-Naraman case, which shed some light on whether attorneys have the power to renew a binding death benefit nomination. In this particular case, there was a bit of confusion or uncertainty around whether the attorneys could renew it because they were also recipients but the judge sort of said that because they were just confirming the existing estate plan that it was okay in this case. Cooper Grace Ward who worked on the case said it could have been different if they were drawing up a new one from scratch so that might have changed the outcome. It also raised some questions around what obligations a trustee has to continue to pay a pension where some of the documentation is missing. In this case, they were able to find secondary evidence that supported that it was a reversionary pension and they also found that it was a complying lifetime pension, so that helped sort of resolve any issues there. There's also been a lot of activity with lenders pulling out of SMSF lending, particularly among the majors, with the exception, I think, of NAB, who still offers SMSF loans for commercial properties only. There's not really any majors that offer SMSF lending anymore. I see, so it's really hard to get... Yeah, so it's becoming increasingly difficult. And AMP was another one of the big kind of lenders and they're not doing it anymore either. They've just they're probably the most recent bank to pull out of it. It seems to sort of stemmed from some of the Royal Commission things. They might be worried that it will create more issues with the bank down the line because there's been a few cases where people had them and maybe shouldn't have. Yeah, and it's a high-risk loan anyway because the SMSF is limited in the amount of funds it can bring in. Yeah, exactly. It's really got to be suited to the person they've got to have enough money and I think there's still a few second tiers that do that kind of lending but it is a lot more limited there's also some changes into LRBA 
measures which will put more restrictions on related party loans, which a lot of SMSFs are turning to now given all the commercial lenders pulling out of the space. I see. And Ben is in front of Parliament at the moment, you mentioned. Yes. So stricter rules are coming in for LRBAs and that would affect related party lending. Yes, exactly. The outstanding amount of the loan will count to the total super balance. So if you have a bigger kind of loan, it makes it really difficult to repay it. So it's sort of restricting it even further. The government also announced it's going to do a review into that franking credit policy that Labor announced. So I guess looking a bit more likely now that Labor seems to be looking more likely to win the election at this stage. But there's obviously been a lot of backlash from the SMSF community. People have said that it's probably not going to impact the people that Labor thinks it's going to, like the wealthier people, because they'll put more money in accumulation anyway, especially with the total or the transfer balance cap. And you said government is looking into that? They just announced that they're going to do a review into it in terms of how... To see who it affects, because it might actually affect the financially weaker part of the population than the really wealthy ones. Yeah, that's correct. And also they're looking at how it might change investor behaviour. So people might pull out of Australian equities in a significant way. Yes, or move out of SMSFs back into industry or retail super funds because there the changes to the franking credit policy would probably not affect them. Yeah, well, exactly. Or they might even just move half of it back into those kind of funds. It's sort of unclear at this stage, but yeah, it would have some impact at least. There's also been a lot of lobbying to restore the accountant's exemption. Ever since that sort of got removed, it's created a lot of difficulties for accountants because they don't really know where the line is anymore. And it was a lot easier just to sort of talk about SMSFs on perhaps just a basic level with clients. So they want to see it returned again. And the limited licensing regime's never been that popular. So a couple of groups like the IPA and BGL have been lobbying politicians to look at at least restoring part of it or maybe even in full. Yes, I think Ron Lash of BGL has been very vocal. Yes. But he did a great job regarding the event-based reporting. So hopefully he has a similar impact as this one. Yes, well, he did have some success with that in terms of making it a little bit more workable for accountants. So maybe this one will turn out as well. Stuart Robert, the assistant treasurer, hasn't ruled it out or anything, but he has said they want to wait till the final report for the Royal Commission comes out before they decide what direction to go with that. So there's another podcast that Momentum Media does, Accountants Daily, and the editor of that, Katrina Tory, she's also very vocal about the accountant's exemption. Yes, she sort of joined the lobby bandwagon a bit as well, and we're trying to report on how that's going. So there's also been a few inefficiencies with T-Bar that accountants and advisors and tax agents want to see change. I think it was 
Peter Burgess said the declaration section of the tea bar is very clunky at the moment. So every time they lodge a tea bar, they have to get a declaration from the trustee confirming that the tax agent can actually report the info provided. That's obviously very cumbersome and the industry would like to see that process be a bit more streamlined, maybe like the single touch payroll, for example. Who's Peter Burgess? Is he with DBA lawyers? Uh, no, from uh, Super Concepts. Okay. He's like the technical policy expert. And who is Super Concepts? Um, one of these sort of big ass SNCF admin firms. Ah, oh, okay. So like Heffron and Yeah, exactly. And yeah. One of the other bugbears with T-Bar has been the access that tax agents and other professionals have to the client's T-Bar or TBC data. It makes it very difficult for them to know if things have been reported or where the client is at in terms of how much money they have and whether they need to be an annual reporter or a quarterly reporter. The ATO said that they're working on this, but it seems to be only for tax agents at this stage. Yeah, but that would already help if tax agents can see their clients reported TBA and... Yeah, exactly. At least it would help them. So, And it might be extended to advisors at a later point anyway. Was it a little bit quieter than usual? Um, there was less kind of happening on the technical front, I would say. It was more like things happening in the courts and lobbying more than big legislative changes, which it normally is. We just passed the deadline for the first T-bar reporting, or first events-based reporting. Have you heard a lot of screaming about that? I think it's gone a bit smoother now. I know there was 2,000 excess determinations issued, but I think a lot of those got rectified by the date they had to be fixed. That's regarding the 30th of June. Yes, so far. I really good told you then. I guess there's not been too much commotion about it, so I assume it's probably gone fairly smooth. Usually when things are really hard, people tend to talk or complain about it more. Mm. Or it just completely passed. Most yes, that's true. Maybe they just, just didn't realise so they had to do it. <laughs> that's always a possibility as well. I Things. Is there penalties if you miss the 28th of October deadline? Well, the HA said they're going to be pretty relaxed about it, at least take a more education kind of approach for the first year, and then at some point they'll start to enforce it more. But for now they sort of understand that people are just trying to adjust to it and it's still very new, so I think they'd be pretty lenient. I see. So maybe also that's why there hasn't been so much screaming because people are taking it easy and yeah. if they haven't done it yet or so they... Don't be too worried. Yeah, uh, yes, I would say that's the case, yeah. Welcome back. So this all up was a relatively quiet four months, which is good. We don't need another super reform at the moment. In the next episode, episode 99, Michael Welpold of UNSW will talk about the taxation of goodwill. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaas for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.